listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my something, McGill. And for part of this episode, I'll be a GM. But then later on, I'm becoming the Hollyhock God. Oh, man, I'm so excited for this <laughs> crazy crazy nonsense you know i wasn't excited for crazy nonsense like prawn where we're hanging around a pool i'm not i'm just not a pool guy um but i'm i'm so excited for this crazy nonsense this hollyhock this hollyhock <laughs> sounds like a word for nonsense um it is the 15th of june 2023 and we are recording the 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 episode our our Episode 154. That's what's going on. And I am just beginning. I, I sort of led into it last time, but I'm just beginning to go through the record of my uh, game. The, the, the session or the beginning of the operation of my Coyote's Aegis campaign, Operation Goldeneye. The campaign... It's my third 5e campaign, Coyote's Aegis. We're in Act 5, when we uh, are entering the Forest of Agaloc. And right on the outskirts of Agaloc, we begin Operation Goldeneye. And this is the operation where the party can only slap the enemy, right? Oh yeah, slappers only. That's a Goldeneye reference. Now... They can only um, they can only use weapons that are plated with gold. They can only use proximity mines. Ah. Um. No, none of that. All of that is references to the N sixty four game Goldeneye. Now it's on all sorts of things. You can play it on Xbox and stuff. Um. McGill, I have something to say about a thing I've said previously on the podcast i basically this came up in a conversation with me and someone i was we um they said that people in their play group were not down to play thirsty sword lesbians and i said i think the only game that i'm like definitely not down to play that i've drawn the line on is dogs in the vineyard then i went to look up dogs in the vineyard to try and find it to show them but um or at least to reference it in explaining it but uh it turns out you can't get dogs in the vineyard anymore i mean not officially you can't buy it it's not for sale or anything even the developer acknowledged how objectionable certain elements of the setting were and was basically his exact quote i believe was uh westerns can go to hell utah history can go to hell and until i can extricate dogs in the vineyard from that it can go to hell as well remind me again like is this was this really was this mormon was it the mormon game yeah i have derisively called it the mormon game i've said i won't play the mormon game Well, as I said when you when you mentioned it to me, uh, it is still out there. You could very easily find it, but I guess yeah, you could bring it to the danger room for all you. C I don't think all, I will. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to expose the sins of people in Frontier Utah, a place that has such fraught colonial overtones already. 
even just skimming the beginning of the document was distressing. Ah, that's, um, yeah, that's one way to put it, I guess. That's, uh, I mean, it's funny because then in my conversation with this person I was talking about dogs in the vineyard with, um, I got to talking about how, you know, I used to be really into white wolf RPGs, vampire and stuff. And I got to saying, you know, the thing is they're a bit of a problematic fave because like, you know, they, uh, they've published some really cool games, but they also published some very questionable stuff. And, uh, the person I was talking to was like, oh, that's too bad. Have they learned since and moved away from that? And it was one of those moments of like, oh, man, <laughs> that is a big question. <laughs> like, I got off on such a tangent after that about like, okay, so like, here's something that happened. And that was relatively recently. Maybe they've gotten a little better from that. But it's hard to say because like the whole... You know, it's like what we were saying with Renegade Games and how, how they are now putting out, like, Vampire the Masquerade stuff and everything. It's like, I don't know who White Wolf is anymore. I don't know who's running right. that show. I don't know what they do. All I know is that, like, it seems that the stuff that happened in the new World of Darkness era, including Scion, that has gone over to Onyx Path. And the thing is, like both white wolf and onyx path have their names on things like as recently as 2018 that are like super just whack and problematic white wolf if you look up white wolf russia controversy it will bring <laughs> up God. stuff about how uh basically in a in a 2018 like vampire the masquerade reboot book they suggested that maybe the systematic killing of gays in Chechnya was actually, in fact, about vampires um, and, you know, sort of met on the Internet by a resounding, what the hell were you thinking? And um, but then, you know, I, I can't remember how recently it was. It feels like it was like 2018 or something. But the whole controversy, you know, again, you look up white wolf controversy it like pops up automatically it's like onyx path controversy uh with beast the primordial and all the nonsense with that and then the, the guy the lead developer on that turned out to be a predator god i i it's like i know i should go get my sources for all this but it's just exhausting mcgill you know oh yeah yeah uh, yeah i mean i i'm definitely not deep into white wolf and world of darkness the way you have been in the past so even i don't re really know all the different controversies but it seems like lately it doesn't even matter what industry it's in you know you're just waiting for the the shoe to drop whether you're into i don't know rick and morty or or whatever what other thing stand-up comedy i don't know it's like the thing is that White Wolf, it's it's it goes back all the way to their old origins in the 90s. And it's always just been a kind of tone of like, you know, some white guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about being like, oh, but what if this was a thing? And it's like, well, that's a pretty misinformed idea for a couple of reasons. But like back in the 90s, they didn't have the Internet to just scream at them. What were you thinking every time right. they did something like that? So like. That's sort of like the core upon which Old World of Darkness is built is like, man, what if Eastern religion was building up to a fight between wizards? 
Um, <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot of experts on Eastern religion weighing in on that. I I would reckon. <laughs> so. Where do we want to go from here, Miguel? Well, I haven't even talked about what I'm going to be doing in the danger room yet. Um, I'm going to be wrapping up uh, Don't Rest Your Head, which was the insomnia-themed RPG that I talked about on last episode, and I uh, realized that it's actually going to be kind of a, a Neil Gaiman-centric episode this time, because... Uh, Don't Rest Your Head is very clearly influenced by things like Neverwhere. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of what I'll be talking about this time has a real Neil Gaiman flavor. Last time I talked about like the mechanics and the system. This time I want to talk a bit more about the setting and all of these NPCs all feel very Neil Gaiman. And then the other RPG I'm covering where I am, the Hollyhock God, the game master is the Hollyhock God, is... Nobilis. We've been waiting for this one. I know, you know, get hype. I know Tom is excited. And uh, this is also very Neil Gaiman-esque because... It's true. It conjures up images of Sandman. But man, I have been hyping up like so much this thing. And I almost wanted to bring up on this note, like, wait, what, where are you? How do you feel about Neil Gaiman? Are you a fan? You a big fan? Uh, f- call me fan, but not big fan. I like a lot of his books, uh, and I, I like a lot of just like things that have come out of his work. Uh, his comics, of course. I like uh, when he dips his toe into superhero comics. Could be pretty cool. Um, I haven't like read all of his stuff, and I don't know. There's varying degrees. Uh, like I liked, I even liked the, I've, I've read the Sandman comic and I even was surprised at how much I enjoyed the Sandman Netflix series that he, uh, was showrunner for. So I don't know, call me fan, but not super fan. Yeah. I think that for me, I really like the I book of Sandman... American gods, but not so much the show, you know? Yeah. I, I read American gods in high school, but I don't think that American gods, had the same impact on me that Sandman did. I think Sandman was like a very influential work one way or another when I read it uh, at the time in my life when I read it. Um, but, but which is funny to say because I don't really consider myself a huge fan of Neil Gaiman. Um, I know, I'm not sure I could really tell you why particularly one way or another, um, you know how I even... you know how I think of Neil Gaiman, how I sort of categorize him in my mind. I categorize him uh, almost the same way I categorize Tim Burton, where they have this real influence over like early '90s goth culture, especially, and they're obviously interested in these very fantastical and imaginative stories that have these dark elements to it. But as time has gone on, you know the the their particular. Uh, output, the type of thing that they do has felt like it's like it was so influential early on that now it almost feels cliche. There it's so I I'm like not a fan. I'm not a fan of Tim Burton. I definitely wouldn't say, but not even like Beetlejuice. Like I like Beetlejuice, (laughs) you know, I like uh, 
uh, Edward Scissorhands, but I don't really like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Alice in Wonderland. I don't like any of that stuff. I just like Ed Wood. I mean, Ed Wood um, is fantastic. It's it's just a great movie, but you don't even like um, Mars Attacks. I feel like you'd you'd be the kind of guy who'd love Mars Attacks. Those those hey, Martians um, are very gobliny, where they show up and they just wreak havoc and make fun of everyone. I can see what you're saying, and I'm. But they are I, major I goblin energy. Just, those those Martians. I'm trying. I'm kind of just eh on on Mars Attacks, honestly. Um, but you know, it's a funny thing. I don't. I'm almost like hesitant to bring this up because it seems like such a. I don't know an adjacent kind of qualm, but it's it's something that always strikes me with Neil Gaiman, and I think like maybe it's just maybe maybe it's just like White Wolf, where it's like a product of that time, where but it's like you know Neil Gaiman, particularly you know whether it's it's American Gods or in Sandman, he has this tendency to tell queer stories in his work. But, like, he's not queer, right? As far as I know. See, and, like, I feel like that's very much a thing of the time is, like, well, you know, actual queer voices aren't getting published, so the best we can do is have, you know, uh, just a white guy publish queer stories in his work. But it's something that, like, I look back on and it's just kind of like, oh, I wish, you know... It, it just, it just, I don't know. There's something about it that's like almost tacky or something, you know? It does, it does very much feel like a product of that time. What do you think? I mean, I guess so, but I feel like Neil Gaiman has still, you know, championed queer voices as time has gone on. He's remained fairly progressive. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he, it's at all disrespectful either. I think it's just a thing of like, I don't know, it's. Uh, I get what you're saying. It's it's back then. Back then, we didn't have queer voices telling queer stories, but like these days, I prefer it to be right. right exactly. I don't really think that's that's on gaming. No, absolutely. The thing is, I it's funny because, uh, and this is relevant to our podcast, is like I've heard a very similar sentiment raised about. Uh, the Adventure Zone and like uh, the McElroy brothers in their work because they will also like include queer characters in like the Adventure Zone, but then it's like, yeah, this is really uh, good con, good queer content coming from three married white guys, like, <laughs> and but like, you know, again, not really their fault, and they are trying to p put some diversity in their stories, so like it. You can't really like I don't know. It's it's something so, that so it, I feel almost bad for trying to fault them for or something, which I don't really want to. But it's just a thing of like, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting question, and I mean, yeah, like as we've been saying, it's not like their fault. It's just a sort of like an unfortunate aspect of the work. I guess what I'd wonder is. Uh, if they take the adventure zone, if they weren't uh, recording it as a podcast, if it was just like in their home game and they included these queer characters, would you take issue with that? Or is it the fact that people like Neil Gaiman and the McElroy brothers have a platform and you'd prefer it if rather than 
write the queer characters themselves, they invited actual queer content creators to join them for those parts. I mean, I, I'm not even, I, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a weird, I, I mean, I mentioned at the, the, the very top of this, I was hesitant to approach this because it's a bit of a, a Gordian's knot. I, to answer your question, like, no, I, I don't have any problem with them doing that in their home dive. I would ki kind of be impressed if they were doing that in their, like, private game. Um, because then it's like, who is that even for? <laughs> so it's more, it's more like, uh, if their intent is to elevate queer voices, why don't they actually bring on some queer voices? I think it's just a, an unfortunate consequence of like, you know, you try to, uh, tell queer stories, but like, it would be better if you were a queer person telling those stories, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. You just, uh. Yeah. I say let's just do both. Well, evidently we right. are. That's that's the whole thing, right? I just um yeah, I don't know. It's uh it's it's something where like I guess it's just the thing of like now I have that luxury of like when I look at an old Neil Gaiman story, I can see like him including queer stories in Sandman and then I can think like, well, really, if I wanted this kind of story, I would go to like an actual queer storyteller for that story to get like the more full nuance of it. What did you think of the Sandman Netflix series? I only saw the first episode, but this did jump out at me almost immediately because of the inclusion of, like, the gay love interest of, like, the the sidekick to the... You, yeah. you know the guy who ends up, like, inheriting the Sandman? Like, that's the sort of thing where it's like, oh, um, a gay guy is in this story. Okay. Like, it just, it just is very, like, okay, that's, that's fine. Um... At the time, maybe when he wrote it, it might have been a bigger deal. But now it's kind of like, eh, I don't know. It doesn't really say anything. Um, it's just kind of there and it's fine. Hmm. So all that to say, you're, you have a similar opinion to me where it's like, you're okay with Neil Gaiman, but you're not like a big fan. I guess I like him more than you. Yeah, maybe. I think th I think that for me it's almost like um I don't know, the I I have like an awareness of like the influence that his work had on me, but it's very much something that's like in the past for me because now I have a broader range of like, you know. See, I think creative influences to draw. I on. think that that's that's how a lot of people see it. Uh it doesn't seem like his more recent work is celebrated in anywhere near the same way right like his, the adaptations of his work that we're getting uh are things like american gods and sandman which are not recent works of his at all and i keep on hearing that you know they're going to make like the graveyard book into a movie or something but never seems to actually happen so i don't know uh, i guess I think a lot of people have a, a similar view where it's like it was influential at the time, but now it's almost old hat because times have changed. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it. And the thing is, I think the real, you know, if if this is to be read as like a critique of Neil Gaiman, I would say 100 percent the 
measure of Neil Gaiman is as a writer is his ability to like accept that and be like, Oh, the times have changed and just like be more an ally and stuff. And I think he is that, I think that generally that's the case. And I think that like, that's also what the McElroy brothers try to be. Um, it's just like, and I mean, the McElroy brothers have been getting more involved in like getting other and more diverse voices involved in their projects. So, you know, credit to them for that as well so it's uh it's a progress game anyway i'm excited for for noblis and uh, man oh man uh well why don't we do operation goldeneye first and then we can dive into all these neil game and ask rpgs all right so to start off just a quick recap of operation goldeneye so far so we got the party. We got uh, Connor Bloomheart, half orc uh, cleric of Palor. We got Gent, the Kenku rogue, and we got uh, Hexakila Calavera, the lizard man fighter slash barbarian. They've been sent to a forward outpost outside the forest of Agalok to meet with contacts who can provide them with objectives and up to date intel. Regarding Lord Dio, the Lord of the Mantle, the human uh, city in the Agalok, they're they're getting up to date intel regarding his schedule uh, and his scheduled departure from the Mantle. The meeting point is effectively the forward cartography office, where up to date maps of the area are kept and adjusted according to scout reports. And when the party arrived, they managed to rendezvous with two of the contacts, uh, Sir Ram, who wants their old pal uh, Dexter from the uh, Agalok higher-ups captured alive if possible. And they also ran into the tiefling Rin, who had been involved in their little uh, caravan uh, trip back in the beginning of the campaign. And Rin asked them to look for a sample of a mysterious purple gemstone. However, their primary contact... A soldier by the name of Francesca was late in arriving, and when she showed up, she was in a hurry, indicated and indicated that she was being followed. So, Hex was first out the door, with Gent following close behind. They came into they came out into the wintry air of the outpost. Once again, we're reminded that Agalok is like entering its winter season, and uh, means that Hex is going to be sleepy. Um, they uh, come out into the wintry air of the outpost to see humanoid figures approaching from the tree line. Generally, that's bad news because, uh, I mean, humanoids in general, that could be anything. But we know that the mantle is a human supremacist uh, settlement. And therefore, you know, if we see humans coming, it probably means bad guys. So the party uh, takes a look at the incoming guys with their trioptics. And they count 10 human militia, uh, the same type that they recognize from the mantle incoming. And as before, they were equipped with chainmail armor, blades, and nets. You might remember uh, they were throwing nets around at uh, people back in the mantle to, like, uh, subdue them as they were sort of, like, martial law back in the mantle. I'm, I'm just, but, like, uh, biting my tongue over here, desperately trying not to make obnoxious amounts of golden eye jokes. 
Oh, yeah, well... And were I, I DMing are... Operation Gold Knight, like, you would bet that there'd be, like, a little short guy that no one could hit. I just... Okay, I was gonna say, like, are the are your Golden Eye jokes gonna be relevant to the content that I'm describing here? Or are they just gonna be Golden It's gonna be Golden Eye jokes, that's the problem. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's the problem. Um The uh he, so these humans they rush past the incomplete palisades and stop roughly one hundred feet away from the party and the building, forming up as they halt their advance. One steps forward as leader of the party, blade in hand, and yells, Identify yourselves! And uh, Gent sort of counts as like, huh, ten of them. They take up the rapier and set it on fire while they're in wait. Meanwhile, Hex also lights up his scimitar. They both got flaming swords. And Connor shouts out, We represent the combined forces of Drail. Lay down your arms! And, uh... Jet says, yeah, we're the people who are invited. Who are you? And the man who called out the issues, called out to them issues in order to charge and the militia approach and everyone rolls initiative. So Hexakila goes first. I got to say, the militia uh, enter formation. I, yeah, what's up? I got to say, I'm kind of disappointed that they even bothered to do like the warning. I was almost expecting as soon as the first guy steps up, blade in hand is like, throw down your weapons and surrender. He's just instantly set upon by Mpox's finest. It's true. They they didn't have to say anything. They just chose as, as but soon instead as, they chose as to soon as light up. He said that threat. I was like, oh, dude, you were so in over your head. <laughs> He does I mean there's ten of them. He doesn't he doesn't like the the Agalock people, they're not as informed about Mpox's uh, crazy agents, I don't think, as uh sort of the larger nightside eclipses. Um especially since Agalock has been in this sort of like cut off state now. Like um Yeah, I guess word word wouldn't have gotten there of their exploits. Yeah, exactly. They just, like, all they know is that there's some strange invaders from outside the forest trying to come in. So Hexakila goes first. The militia enter formation to charge uh, charge him with the one who did the talking taking the lead. And uh, they start about 100 feet away. Hex moves up and uh, takes out his Apollo laser pistol. That's a cool thing to mention is uh, the Apollo laser pistol is inspired by the Apollo laser pistol from System Shock 2, I think it is. But these days, all the rage about uh, System Shock 1, the remake. Do you hear about this? Yeah, I heard they were remaking it. Yeah, apparently it's out now. It's crazy. You know, I've never played it. I never played System Shock. Played System Shock 2. Man. The old classic. I think System Shock 2 is the one that the Apollo laser pistol is from. Um, so anyways, uh, they the party starts moving up, and Gent takes a shot with their uh, compact pistol, but unfortunately it uh, doesn't penetrate the chainmail of the militia, uh, because they rolled garbage 13, they say. Then uh, the militia use their turn to charge the party, dashing forward with blades drawn. Then it's Connor's turn, and he's pretty far back. Um, but uh, what I forgot to 
do when like where I'm like, okay, it's Connor's turn. But then Alex is like, oh wait, does my ready to action with my Apollo laser pistol trigger? And I'm like, of course. And then he rolls a nat 20. And I was like, oh man, I didn't look. I, 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 I said to him, I was like, you know, it's funny. I was blowing my nose when you rolled and I didn't look, but I thought maybe that's a nat 20. <laughs> and, uh, it was a nat 20. Um, but then, I mean, he says here, uh, we're going to shoot the front dude. Uh, only 19 damage. What the hell, man? And, uh, then he gets a second shot as an 18 hit, but that's not even a crit, a crit and it gets 15 damage. So like 19 damage, that's nothing. That's barely anything more than what he normally gets. Um, so First shot strikes the rapidly moving target, but only grazes their leg. However, this slows them so that the next two shots are direct headshots. The leader of the militia squad falls. And then Connor moves up and throws out a dawn on them, shouting, Paylor's light compels you! And nearly all the militia are staggered, desperately attempting to shield themselves from the burning light by raising their arms over their brows. Only one of them seems able to focus through this, and they are just ahead of Hexakila. And, uh... Saram emerges from the building behind them with saber drawn. This actually got a little, uh, heart emoji, a little heart react from, uh, Gent. And actually, Gent says, not sure why it did that, but I guess the sentiment is there. <laughs> so that was unintentional, but very funny. Um, so Hex moves up and just starts shooting on him, starts blasting all these people. Uh, at this point, I mean, it's pretty simple. Like, he's just going into a group of guys that have basically been blinded by an overwhelming dawn sent by Paylor. And uh, he uh, blasts them pretty good. But the thing is, then he's like wading into them with his laser pistol and his pistol and trying to, or and his scimitar and trying to hit these guys and he starts raging. But then the thing is, he walks into the dawn and he has to... Uh, he has to save versus the dawn. He fails and he takes 13 damage. And I say, it's been a while since your scales felt the intense heat of direct sunlight. Uh, probably skip ahead a bunch. Like they, it's just a big old fight. Um, Connor gets hit and loses concentration and dawn dissipates. And I say, alas, a dreary winter over to cast takes hold of the sky. And uh, then that time, Alex accidentally hit the heart thing. <laughs> so another time we got just like weird love for my uh, for my narration. Any thumbs up in there, too? <laughs> Nope, nope, just a bunch of hearts. Interesting. Weird. I don't know how that would happen. Yeah, I don't know. It was something about the double-clicky thing guess, yeah. they said. Now I'm trying to get my Facebook Messenger to just do a heart. Maybe if I... No. It's all just thumbs up. I can't do it. They were lying to you, Tom. They loved it. I mean, it. <laughs> I think... I don't know. Uh, 
so basically what happens after that point is like you know they get into full-on combat with the militia sir ram joins in with them they start working together to take out all these militia guys the dawn only hits them for like the first round which is too bad it would have really solved that problem but then they end up having to whittle them down one at a time in brutal combat sir ram comes up and runs the last one through as hex shoots them in the back bringing this to a swift conclusion Hex turns to him as he pulls his blade from the body and says, they, uh, they weren't yours, right? And Sir Ram shakes his head. Francesca approaches from behind him, carrying a backpack in one arm. He says, it just seems they were confused by our presence. I've seen some strange mind-altering things in these lands. And, uh, they're extremely isolated in the deep forest, as far as I can tell. I don't think any of them have much of an idea of what's going on beyond their borders, Francesca explains. They only chased me because they caught me while I was breaking off from observing Dio's retinue. Gent, uh, while they talk, Gent goes over to loot the bodies. And uh, Hex says, ah, very good. What can you tell us about the retinue? Examining the bodies, Gent finds that the militia each carry a uniform, chainmail, a simple blade, a slingshot, a pouch with with 100 rough spherical, spherical stone bullets for the slingshot, and a net. And uh, Gent says, nice, I pocket the bullets. And I have a little brackets thing here where I'm like, did you want just one pouch of 100 rough stone bullets or did you want to grab more? There are 10 militiamen, each with one pouch of 100 bullets. And Hex is like, does Gent want to want 1,000 round stones? Because like, hijinks. <laughs> and Gent says, I mean, if I have room and I can carry them, I want 1,000. And I just wrote, plus 1,000 rough stone bullets. Plus 10 pouches. Jen says, amazing. Uh, so, getting back to Hex's question about the retinue, Francesca clears her throat and says, the retinue was large, probably not more than 100 strong, but it's worth noting some detachments broke off over the course of his journey while I was observing. So he left the mantle with a lot of forces, then some went back. Some followed me. Some may have gone to other places, but I know where Dio and the bulk of them went. It looked like it's going to be some sort of arms deal, Francesca describes. They've set up like they're going to be waiting for somebody. Based on my assessment, she hesitates momentarily, I think it's our best, uh, it's our best chance to assassinate Lord Dio. He's vulnerable. I don't think we should waste this opportunity just to find out who he's meeting with. She looks around at, your gr at the group and says, That said, I don't necessarily think it's impossible to do both. You might be able to wait them out and observe the meeting, then take out Dio before he departs. But if you're not sure you'll get the chance, she frowns and becomes quiet. Well, I've given my take on things. I'm sure you know what you're doing. She gives a nod and a slight smile. Primary objective, assassinate Lord Dio, she clarifies, almost more to herself than the party. And this, McGill, is what this mission is really about. Uh, in the module, uh, Death on the Wall, the way it happens is the party is just, like, in a tavern or whatever. I think they're there to, like, meet with a contact or somebody. But the person who shows up, they show up, like, running from a crazy, like, like a guard uh, contingent. 
and they're like they just hand this like go bag to the party and they're like look they're on to me i can't do this job anymore it's your job now and when they like open the bag it's got all this like poison and stuff in it and weapons and then there's like instructions that's basically like assassinate the corrupt lord of hills far first lord doran normenthal or whatever the hell Um, so, uh, we say that the thousand rough stone bullets are tucked away in the handy haversack or the portable hole or the bag of holding, whatever it is. And Jet says, so now we have to assassinate this guy. And, uh, Hex says, yeah, but who is he meeting with? Former Nightside, the mushroom men? This does bear investigation. I'll tell you what, guys. It was former Nightside. It's, it's current Nightside. He, they, they want to try and make contact the night side eclipse dun 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 you um, hate those guys night side eclipse yeah but the night side eclipse doesn't really have any good news for them either it's like at best they're just gonna find out that the night side eclipse can't really like offer them help uh, anyways maybe that honestly it's been a while since I ran this so maybe that's what was going on maybe not uh, Francesca holds out the backpack she's been carrying. This is for you. Should help with the mission from infiltration to execution. Connor grabs it and peeks inside. I say plus one backpack. The backpack contains 50 feet of rope, a male human militia uniform, a crowbar, a grappling hook, manacles, one set plus keys, a tinder box, five flasks of oil, one vial with one green dot painted on it, one vial with two green dots painted on it, and one vial with one yellow dot painted on it, and a plus two vicious hand axe. And Gent, just before uh, Connor looks in the bag, says, this will be embarrassing if it is a backpack full of stone bullets. Uh, Connor pulls out the two-dot vial and says, what's this, ale, double strong? And I have them roll nature to identify the contents of the vial of the vials, which uh, this, uh, you know, this, this is one of the checks in the module is uh, the woman shakes her head and says, poison, you may want to note this down. The way it's marked is one green dot means basic poison, two green dots means serpent's venom, and one yellow dot means assassin's blood. Those are all f types of... Uh, types of uh you know poison from 5e and gent points out nice also technically we have 11 uniforms because just 10 of them are messy you get it because of the militia oh. <laughs> god Francesca continues to explain. They've set up ladders and makeshift scaffolding around some ruins we'd searched previously out in the forest. They're not even that deep in, to the truth be told. The old stone arches of the ruins have been barricaded to serve as walls, and they've set a watch along the scaffolding. They might have built up more since I fled. And this concludes her briefing. And uh, Connor takes the serpent's venom and assassin's blood and turns it over to Gent, but keeps the basic poison for himself and Jen says this is the nicest gift you've given me <laughs> and uh, Jen says so we need to go see who he's meeting and then eliminate him and uh, Connor says what if you and Hex take position to watch this guy then I get on the ebony fly and try to find the other party approaching that would give us a little flexibility when this pops off do you know the ebony fly the ebony fly uh, no not offhand 
think it's the ebony fly. Yeah. It's one of these classic figurines of Wonder's power, but um, it's very cool because the the ebony fly turns into a giant fly that I'm pretty sure has like a unique stat block that is unique to the uh to to this item basically is like Neat. you get a giant fly that you can fly around on it can be ridden as a mount yeah it says this ebony statuette is carved in the likeness of a horse fly it can become a giant fly for up to 12 hours and can be ridden as a mount once it has been used can't be used again until two days have passed cool and gross hell yeah reminds me of the phantom flyer remember that that i do hell yeah i love the phantom flyer um so uh that's hex's initial pitch i say one thing that should be said is that they don't know when this meeting will take place and dio's schedule indicated he would be away for a matter of days they can enact this plan but it may involve a lot of waiting and uh, Alex says, fair. Do we have any way of appearing as humans? We lost all those sweet disguised self-scrolls. I say, I mean, I don't think I see anything in Jen's inventory that would help for that, but I don't know about Connor or Hex. He says, seems like no. I say, they don't have more to offer you than what's included in the bag, if that's what you're wondering. They're like, all right, we'll get suited up in these uniforms here. We'll just have to keep our distance. And Jen says, man, we're going to have a hard time fitting in with these xenophobic fucks. And uh, Hex throws a uniform on under his robe of eyes. Connor tries to fit one over his body armor. I say, Connor def can't. Connor definitely can't get it over his armor, but he can get it under. The uniform actually fits Connor best out of the three of them. Gent has the worst fit, which I somehow imagine they would attempt to offset with an assortment of outlandish accessories <laughs> from their collection, like a monocle and a blood-stained white scarf. That was literally reading uh, elements out of her inventory. Since the uniforms are meant to be worn with chainmail armor, Connor is able to find a compromise between making the uniform visible and keeping his armor equipped. And uh, Gent says, fair, but stealth may be king in this. And Alex says, yeah, again, if we get close enough to be seen, the game might already be up. And uh, from there, they declare they are ready to head out. You know what this reminds me of? is uh back in uh minds of metal and wheels when you were doing old indiana jones type adventures and you uh, hit the guys that got their disguises yeah. and everything way back when that classic one that was in brazil i think so when they went to brazil brazil dun, 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 or dun. uh or was it in the desert no it was definitely a jungle setting okay but yeah, I can't remember exactly. They, they, we got an episode on the record for it. Might have been, they might have done that more than once. I just remember. Uh, it's very possible. Yeah, I just remember them stealing the uniforms and then driving up in the Jeep. Yeah, I mean, in this in this case, they're not driving up. If anything, they're, they're keeping their distance because the uniform will only go so far, uh, really, if they get caught being not human, uh, the game's up, like Hex says. So, it only takes them a few hours to reach the enemy encampment, but due to the winter season and the cover of the trees above, it is very dark when they arrive. They see dozens of torches and campfires in the distance, providing illumination for dozens of humanoid figures. Some of the figures are in armor, some in common clothes, and the majority of them are moving about the camp on the ground. 
They can see the reinforced ruins that Francesca told them about, stone arches about 20 feet high and barricaded so as to serve as walls for the camp. The tops of these are punctuated by wooden platforms surrounded by low wall cover, each featuring a brazier that could be lit to alert the entire camp. Four guards stand on the scaffolding along the tops of the walls, while eight more are stationed at the battlements. Two, guard, two, to, two guards to each platform, with four platforms in total. And Gent says, damn, Connor is going to struggle. And I have them roll nature. Gent gets a nat 20. And I say, between basic meteorological knowledge and a gut sense you've developed over the course of your life regarding the weather, Gent feels pretty certain that it'll begin snowing two days from now. Based on their knowledge of Dio's schedule, that'll be the last day he's out here. And Gent uh, rips a feather out of their arm and holds it up and then drops it to the ground and says, mm, gonna snow. And the hex shudders. So be it. Let's find a spot to lay low. And I say, sleep in weather where Hex is from. And Gent uh, says, so we need to act before. And I say, yeah, it's just a lizard joke. But yeah, what's the plan now? Gent says, okay. So I think I would like to scout around and get an, an idea of accurate numbers, buildings, and a layout to tell the other two. Hex says you will then focus on finding a nice rocky outcropping or copse to lay low in. Meanwhile, Connor begins circling around to the far side of the camp to find his own hiding spot. I say, all right, this makes sense. The dark conditions provided by the forest and winter evening will give Gent the ability to easily move from shadow to shadow, effectively invisible. And then I have uh, Gent roll stealth with advantage. Gent infiltrates the camp effortlessly. The walls are insubstantial enough that Gent can turn invisible into in the darkness, then slip through them like a ghost. The battlements with the alarm braziers aren't even a concern. And uh, Connor, meanwhile, is taking the long way around, staying as far away from the camp as possible until he's around the far side. I say, beyond the camp's defensive perimeter, large tents and pavilions have been set up to accommodate Lord Dio and his considerable retinue. Among the ruins, they see what appears to be a shrine featuring a large cracked stone ankh. It feels bizarre seeing an ankh that hasn't been inverted to denote an allegiance to the nightside eclipse. They can determine or guess the purpose of some of the tents at a glance. There appears to be a kennel set up, a stable, a massive barracks tent, a mess tent adjacent the barracks with a little kitchen set up out back, and finally a massive tent constructed of heavy canvas reminiscent of a triage tent. Firelight emanates from within the last tent, and it seems obvious to them that this is the one that Lord Dio occupies. A short distance away, they also see a hill in the forest nearby. And uh, I have them roll uh, stealth, but I say, don't worry. You're not going to get spotted by the guards on the walls the way you've been moving. This is for something else. So they, they roll. Hex gets a 31. Connor gets a 14. They say, so Hex is laying low like he wants, found exactly what he's looking for. Connor is also doing well. The snow and forest obstructions are a pain, but the boots allow him to his boots of elven kind allow him to move while making minimal noise. Connor ends up coming around the hill that I mentioned. Much to his surprise, there appears to be a lone soldier that has wandered over there. They're effectively hidden in the forest atop the hill, which is about a hundred feet around and rises to about sixty feet. The soldier definitely hasn't spotted Connor, but Connor can observe them from a distance. 
And uh, meanwhile, Gent says, how often do people guard or circle Dio's tent? And I say there are three militia guarding the entrance to Dio's tent at all time. times. The tent is large enough to accommodate multiple chambers and at least a dozen residents. And Gent goes, sneaks back to Hex and says, got an idea for what we should do? And I say another issue with Dio's tent that is well lit enough that once they came out of stealth, it would be very difficult to re-enter it. Hex says, I think we need a distraction to pull the guards away. And uh, Hex is kind of sleepy from the temperature. He says, uh, something that might not be pinned on outsiders. A fire, a beast attack, something like that. And Gent says, is our plan to poison the fucker or one shot between the ribs? And uh, Hex says, we've only got a little poison. Our best poison needs to be eaten. Can you get intel on the kitchen gent tent? The, the kitchen tent? Not kitchen gent, kitchen tent. And Hex yawns. I'll be here if you need me. Meanwhile, uh, Connor has upholstered his Thanatos anti-material rifle. Is keeping a bead on this guard. Uh, he's observing the soldier. <laughs> he says, not upholstered, uh, upholstered. Unholstered. I was going to say, he upholstered it? <laughs> Led right into it. And Gent was like, prefer upholstered. It's like adding a, and, uh, a weapon skin in a video game. Uh, and I say, man, Hex needs to check his attitude or he'll be getting a super stim wake-up experiment. And Hex says, uh, well, or, or Alex says, but Connor's sniper rifle does have a nicely crocheted cheek rest. I say, uh, Connor, give me a perception check with advantage, an insight check normal, and a stealth check normal. And uh, Gent says, what I may do is spend some time observing the tent and noting any comings and goings, including food, and if there is a food tent or kitchen. And I say, there is a mess tent adjacent the barracks with a little kitchen set up out the back. And you're observing the tent. Do you mean Dio's? And she says, yes. So Connor, I have him do this crazy combo roll. He rolls 17 for perception, 26 for insight, and a nat 20 for 22 stealth. I say, so Connor has a perfect setup here. A clear shot, limited enemy visibility, and the ability to observe his target in detail thanks to his equipment. Connor is playing it cool. There's no way this dude is going to catch on unless Connor lets him. As he observes the target, he comes to a realization. This guard, equipped with a blade, shield, and chainmail armor, has snuck away from the camp to use insomnium. He is furtively crouched in the forest atop the hill, snorting lines of the extraplanar powder at erratic intervals between paranoid glances toward the camp. Some of the stuff glitters along the side of one of his gloves. Do you, re do you remember Insomnium? Sleeping. The mysterious... What's that? It's a sleeping powder. No, no, it's the opposite. It's a drug. It's the drug that uh, they harvest from the mines in uh, oh, Mephisto's yeah. level of hell in this campaign in Kenya. That's right. This guy's an insomnium addict. And uh, Alex says that seems ominous. Connor will stay cool and continue watching down his sights. Ominous or insomnious? Uh, insomnious, yeah. Does he return to camp or is he sticking around? And I say, Jen observes the tent for some time, allowing them to determine who is and is not allowed within the larger tent. 
Firstly, it seems that staff from the kitchen bringing food are allowed in. This is a notable exception because the only other two individuals that they see go inside seem to have some sort of authority to do so, though even they must wait momentarily outside before entering, unlike the cooks. There are three humans, one of them fairly young, who appear to be working in the kitchen. Gent thinks, okay, I'm thinking perhaps bribery, perhaps blackmail a drug user to poison the food for us. And Alex says, that seems wise, but Connor is currently incommunicado. If that's the plan, we got to get in touch with him. And Gent says, or do we bribe a kitchen worker? I say, the other two notable individuals that Gent spots entering and leaving the large tent are, are a man and a woman, each on their own. The man is clad in plate armor and carries a broadsword, likely some kind of knight. The woman, meanwhile, has scale armor, a shield, and a sword. She doesn't fit into a category as neatly as the knight does, but it appears she has some connection to the Ankh Shrine as she spends much of her time near it. Gent says, since we don't won't be able to disguise ourselves to get in, do I recognize what the shrine is about? I say, try a religion roll. Also, uh, do you guys remember the woman you spoke to when you were disguised in the mantle who acted kind of shocked at how rude you were? And Gent says, yes, did not roll well. I say, was that Gent that had the that encounter? And she says, yes, I tried to spread a rumor. And... Actually, this is all just a weird tangent because <laughs> now we're we're just getting confused. Um, Gent was actually thinking of the wrong person. She was thinking of somebody she tried to start a rumor with in the thing. I'm like, there's some confusion here. I think the rumor was the one of the servants in the manor. This was a situation where I think she saw you leading Hex and Connor disguised nobles into a rowdy bar or something. She advised you to take them to the manor instead. And Hex is like, or Alex is like, all right, oh, right. And I'm like, but I still think it was Gent that did the talking. And Chantel says, oh, right. I was called rude on more than one occasion. <laughs> and uh, so I get him to do an insight check. And Jet says, this is a real 17 this time, not just their reliable talent kicking in. And I say, all right. So first off, you're trying to think about that. When you know, you're trying to think about what you know about Ankhs. Again, most of the time when you see them, they're inverted, the symbol of the nightside eclipse. But your college studies suggested that the symbol had to be an Ankh that, that is the key of life. The symbol had to be an Ankh that is the key of life before it was inverted for use as a necrosupremacist symbol. This correlates with the fact that Deathlands natives not loyal to the Nightside Eclipse have been known to adhere to faith related to death, passage of the soul, etc. in a proper sense relative to the Nightside Eclipse crimes against nature. These generally manifest as what we would identify as ancient Egyptian spirituality and faith. Knowing this, you would guess that the Old Ankh is a shrine to Isis. Its condition and location supports the belief that these faiths may, may precede the arrival of the Nightside Eclipse in Drail. Does that make sense, McGill? Did that I was reading that off and I kind of stumbled over my words. But basically, the idea here is that there were onks in the Deathlands apart from the Nightside Eclipse. The Nightside Eclipse inverting the onk as their symbol. That is them like corrupting the symbol of the onk. But because the onks exist already that means that basically what we would understand as like ancient egyptian spirituality that sort of exists in the among the natives of the deathlands apart from uh 
you know, the night side eclipse and what they're doing. And so because of that, uh, Jen is able to recognize that this is actually almost like she's sort of her college studies are telling her that this is like ancient religion symbol, basically, and that this is actually a shrine of ice history pays off. And Jen says, not sure how we approach that. Hex takes a moment to think of Frosh Gula and her relationship with Onks. Because Frosh Gula, the uh, bloody panda bugbear, was a cleric of Nephthys and was uh, so was like fully a part of that whole like Deathlands Egyptian spirituality. Um, observing the woman, you realize that under her armor, her apparel is similar to that of the woman in the mantle. It occurs to you that maybe she was so taken aback at your rudeness because you were effectively a guard speaking to a member of the clergy or some sort of spiritual authority like a priest. And uh, Alex says, I think if Connor, Connor's mark moves on, he'll move back up to he'll move around and to meet up with Hex. Same long route. And I say, Frosh is a good example of what I was saying about Egyptian death-related faiths existing in the Deathlands separate to the Nightside's influence. Connor would observe the, the guard do about two lines off the side of his glove, then hide his supply away somewhere on his person before licking the glove clean of the glittering traces of the drug. After this, he hastily re-equips himself. He fumbles around a bit, but once he looks fit for duty again, he heads back to the camp, laying low and darting between the trees so his return isn't noticed. And Connor makes a mental note of his path back to the fort. And Connor actually notices that at the end of his route, he actually gets spotted by his fellow guard who calls out to him. The addict moves to speak with the guard, likely hoping to explain himself before he gets in trouble. And, uh... He says, okay, but then, yeah, Connor will move back under the cover of night to report to the rest of the group. And I keep explaining. The guard shakes his head and moves on, moves one of the barricades slightly. The attic slips through with some difficulty. And everyone regroups without difficulty back at Hex's hiding spot. Nobody has been detected. And, uh... So, basically, this is the end of day one. Um... Uh, like it, it's funny my brother is the one who decided to sort of summarize things as he said we were talking about how we were going to have to wrap up soon and alex said all right it's the end of day one we found a squeaky wheel and a method of entry into dio's tent via the kitchen we've got poison we've got sniper rifles we've got concealed positions if we're going to try to bribe someone, Hex can put together a bag of 2,000 gold. If we're going to blackmail the insomnium addict, we know where he uses. But I don't know if bribery and blackmail are going to go well, just given that we are not human and these guys are racist as fuck. And Gent says, yeah, but we can't guarantee any food I poison will get to Dio either. And Alex says, well, we may need some magical subterfuge. And Gent says, yeah, unless I'm in the room or we go with the Gent standard. I throw a grenade and burn it down. And Hex says, or Alex says, I'll have to research Connor's options, but I know he can get Gaius, which is like a behavior modifying charm. Could suggest that someone only eat the right hand side of any meal, then we poison the left. Uh, that way, if he has a feud tester, we can get around that. Again, fires are a great distraction for guards. Grenades are a little obvious. And Gent says, hey, Gent is a burb of many contradictions. And, uh, 
basically they get into a whole thing of like, can clerics take modify memory? We could convince someone that this poison is actually their family heirloom spice blend slash gastrique. And Jen says, ooh, I like that. I'm more upset you can't look human and play guest chef in the kitchen. And uh, Hex says, right? Maybe if I cover my face in flour and shrink a foot. And uh, Gent says, Modify Memory is actually my fave so far. And Hex says, yeah, but it's not Cleric Spell, unfortunately, so that's out. Also, I keep calling my brother Hex because I think of him as mostly playing Hex in this scenario. And uh, Gent says, okay, well, one of the people in the kitchen is young. We could just lie about it. But again, none of us are human. Wait, I've seen Dio's writing, perhaps a forged note to the kitchen requesting a new flavor of food. Ooh, special ordered spices from Agalock, Alex says. And uh, and I say, well, or whoever gets, at least whoever gets Dio to do his writing for him. And they're like, yeah, that's fair. Ha uh, Alex says, now, that poison probably won't kill him, but it will weaken him considerably for 24 hours. So if that poison's the plan, we still got to seal the deal. Jet says, or Al uh, Chantel says, yeah, and still, we want to still know who he's meeting. Connor pulls out the last Helio C4 explosive and Jet uh, says, how many doses are in the vial? One, because frankly, if everyone gets poisoned, I won't be upset. And Alex says, well, they don't need all need to be poisoned. We go, we could go with the, with the distraction route first. Connor has two lions and an elephant burning a hole in his pockets. That's referring to more of those wondrous figurines, the little figurines that turn into giant animals and stuff, turn into real animals. And he says, uh, animal attack on the south gate as dinner is served. And Jet says, sneak in and poison plates, sneak out, then explosions. explosions. And Alex says, seems reasonable. Although I'd say poison the wine in that case. I doubt Lord Dio eats cold meals. Yes. And then the explosions. And Jet says, agreed. Alex says, Hex also has a couple of gas grenades. And I say, worth noting that Jet is also carrying flashbangs, smoke grenades, and oil flasks, among other things. And, uh... Then Alex says, Connor could also pick up the spell Forbiddance, which will ward a 40,000 foot square, uh, square foot area against teleportation for 24 hours if we're worried about interlopers. And then the heart pops up again and Chantel says, goddamn go double tap. <laughs> and I say, uh, probably not necessary considering the mysterious effects of the forest itself. Also might be more of a hindrance to you than harm. And they say, all right. Yeah, a gent says, yeah, I got lots of equipment that can help. And uh, Alex says, so with your boots of speed, you could whip around the camp planting poison and smoke and flashbangs all over the place? Seems like anarchy. And Chantel says, sounds like a plan. Alex says, Connor could watch it, could wa work Overwatch from the hill with his sniper rifle. Hex can sleep. Seems like we've all got jobs. Connor could also prepare the spell control weather, which really amp up the snowstorm. I'd say I'd say this op is shaping up pretty well so far. I've had to do very little chiming in at this point. They're just going wild with it. <laughs> like they're just uh, uh That's great. And uh Alex is like, it's a bit of a thinker, and Chantel says, cool. And I say, it reminds me of Hitman. And Alex says, but without the homing briefcases. And I say, I guess lack of disguises makes it more like well, I always just want to say some tactical military RPG like Jagged Alliance, but I'm actually thinking of Far Cry 2. Oh, Commandos. Commandos for maybe sure. something like Goldeneye. No. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And, 
man, that that's basically where we wrapped it up. Right on. But uh, yeah, that's that that was interesting in that you know more than the record of the game. I feel like it was good to share the record of like you you always ask me about like the players' schemes and whatnot. Like it's a big running theme of this podcast, I think. And that time I got to literally just read you the transcript of like, you know, the players are given an assassination target, they've scoped out the area, they've got their tools, and it's just like so how, so what do you guys do? And they just they just deliberate for a while. I love that stuff. Those are those those moments that as a DM or GM I live for is when your players get so absorbed in the story that they grab the reins for a while and they start planning it out and you don't even have to be involved. You can sort of sit back and listen. And the best part of it is like they're openly scheming, but I don't know, because you're the DM, it's sort of like the camera in a reality TV show. Like they're scheming their their plans. They're making their, their strategy for how to approach not thinking about the fact that the person who is going to be making obstacles for them is right there listening to it. But it's neat. I like that. I, I like I like feeling like the the players are so into the world they stop thinking of the roles within the game and the fact that the DM is right there. Um, what I want to ask is how would you have done it, McGill? How would I, what would my strategy have been? Yeah. How are you, how would you take out? Uh, see, this is a real, I can't answer this, Tom, because I'm not one of these characters. Like I'd want to look at, uh, at someone's full character sheet and all the different things that they had access to. Cause I can't keep track of all their different abilities and things. Um, I, I thought it was really clever. The, uh, the was it the gaze the behavioral modification a bit spell yeah yeah unfortunately not an option but i thought yeah, that was the, a really uh, clever idea is like poisoning the left side of food and then making people you know only some people eat the left it's, it's clever stuff very interesting uh, application that'd get inspiration for me if i was the kind of dm who used inspiration <laughs> but yeah, I I can't really I can't really think of a good strategy because I don't know all that they have in like their inventory and uh and what all their abilities are. I can't keep track of all of them. Yeah, true. I don't know. It's like definitely from the options they listed, like they've got sniper rifles, they've got the means to start a fire. But I mean, like, I don't know. I just obviously you you want to avoid taking on the whole camp. Yeah, the thing is, like, I don't think I've ever even actually looked at any of the character sheets for for those characters for any of the characters in your MPOC campaigns. So I really don't even have a a concept of like where their abilities are at. But like, I know that what Gent regularly gets like what 35 on stealth stuff like that Seven. well they get an automatic like 17 on skill checks from reliable exactly. talent yeah they, like I, this group can be insanely sneaky if they want to be or at least some of them can 
So I don't know, man, even just <laughs> even just knowing that it's like, I don't know, find the take the sneakiest one, get them to sneak in and and assassinate Dio. You know, here's something that I thought about, like that popped into my head, but is it goes way back to like our earliest episodes is back when I first introduced Mpox Finest, there was sort of this ongoing argument of like, were they murder hobos? I was even going like, to drop a comment about murder hobos on this one. Uh, when Jen said potentially poison the entire Which I'm camp. cool with. Like that felt very murder hobo-y. That's, uh, that's the kind of goodwill you get when the players end up uh, experiencing your racist masquerade. Even so. <laughs> Even so, just being like, I wouldn't be sad if literally everyone died. Well, okay. <laughs> In this place that we just sort of wandered our way into, right? I don't know. These these mantle folks have made themselves up to be pretty bad. Human supremacist slavers. I don't know. It it was just a very but, murder uh, hobo we line. Oh yeah, it, it was it was cold as hell. It was pro ice. Anyways, classic, uh, you know, assassination module. That's what this death on the wall module is really all about. It's presenting this this camp and uh, this target having to figure out how they take them down does sound like a good one i'm gonna have to look up that module pretty sure it's the one that well yeah it's the one that comes right after mm -hmm. writhing in the dark as well and it connects directly to uh uh hills far reclaim the one with the masquerade another one the, that i i want to run sometime. the next part of that one yeah. So anyways, I think that about does it for my side of the pod. Cue the theme music. Oh no, it's never starting. <laughs> I was like, that's not it. <laughs> um, first, we're going to wrap up Don't Rest Your Head. And uh, Tom, I know you weren't overly keen on this, and you seemed a little, I don't know, uh, what's the word? It's like you you couldn't fully wrap your head around the, the mechanics of it, right? You were saying that you wish you could see it in action. I think so. This is the, I have trouble remembering, Well, honestly, this is the one uh, but, um, where you have your attributes, you know, like discipline uh, is your main one. You get, you get to roll dice based on discipline, but you can also add dice to the dice pool by taking on exhaustion. All oh, right, or I madness. remember this. This is the one with the d the dominant. That's There's right. The thing that dominates and everything. That's right. Yeah, I remember. And um, and yeah, the, the the idea is that you build your dice pool for each check based on the attributes and uh, whether or not you're adding points of exhaustion or points of madness 
to your roll, uh, exhaustion and madness, can each add dice to your pool that you're going to roll from, but they each come with their own potential to go wrong. Exhaustion makes you more tired, and you don't want to fall asleep. If you fall asleep, bad things can happen. And of course, madness pushes you closer and closer to the brink of losing your grip on sanity, and then, you know, if you get too much madness, you snap, you go crazy, and that can be the end of your character. Um, and there are also, you know, consequences to adding madness and exhaustion beyond that, like, uh, for, uh, oh gosh, yeah, too much madness, um, I'm getting off track in my recap. Anyway, all that to say, you build your dice pool, you take on these optional additional dice, you roll against the, uh, the GM's dice pool, which are all called pain dice, and then based on how many successes you get versus how many successes the GM gets, you either succeed or fail in what you're trying to do. But the sort of unusual additional factor here is uh, successes are represented by rolls of one to three. Uh, if you roll a one to three, that's a success. But once all the dice are rolled, you also take into account which attribute uh, has the highest number in it, and that attribute is is dominant and dictates sort of the narrative consequences of the outcome of the entire rolling check that just happened. And uh, I think that's really interesting, and I watched some actual plays of it, and honestly it feels very intuitive after you sort of see it in action. Like, you know, success or fail st stays the same, but the narrative flavor is kind of improvised along the way, and it allows sort of more, more involvement by the players in how the story is ultimately told. I know one of your concerns with it was that, you know, uh, you do a roll and madness dominates, but the player succeeds in what they were trying to do. You were concerned that then it's like on you to generate this whole new piece of content on the fly that you didn't have prepared. And it sounded like, you know, you don't really like that idea as a GM, right? No, I think it's something I mentioned specifically I was saying about Blades in the Dark is like I find the most difficult thing about the Blades in the Dark, Forge in the Dark system is the fact that like when there's a mixed success or a failure, you have to introduce a consequence or a complication and there's no definitive set of what those are. You, you have to come up with that in the moment. And I feel like, you know, the, the more you have to do that, the tougher, the tougher it is. So watching don't rest your head being played I don't find that it really does that. I don't find that it calls upon the GM or the players to come up with too much on the fly uh, or to keep track of. It's not that the dominant attribute is necessarily introducing um, a new consequence. Like, obviously, there are some consequences. Like, if madness uh, has, is the dominant role, then the player and the player... Uh, regardless of whether or not the player succeeds or fails, if madness is, is dominant, then they have to expend one of their reactions. Remember, they have the, the responses of fight or flight. 
Um, so that's the consequence. So you don't really have to come up with anything new. It's just sort of saying, you know, okay, so like, like an example from the actual play I watched was, uh, the cops are coming after a character and he decides he's going to run away from them down the hall of his apartment building and into the stairwell. And he succeeds in getting away from them, but madness dominates and he has to decide fight or flight. So really all it's saying is like, okay, you can succeed in getting away. You just have to describe how you do it with, you know, the consequence of the dominant attribute accounted for so like he picked flight so it's pretty easy he just frantically runs away you know blasts through the door into the stairwell and starts jumping over the banister to sort of leapfrog his way down the stairs with the cops in tow but he could have said fight so he busts out of his apartment and punches the first officer across the face and then gives the officer a shove while he's off balance sending him into the other two cops that are there and then runs away and sort of the, I guess the narrative consequences uh, can sort of be changed, but they're all sort of secondary. Like he still succeeds. Uh, the dominant dice just sort of dictate how he succeeds or fails. Does that make sense? Yeah. So do the dominant do the dominant things always pertain to the use of fight or flight or is that only in the only case in the of case madness? of madness like if if discipline is dominant then it just sort of goes off the way you want it to go off with no additional complications if pain is dominant like in the example i gave if uh he succeeded but pain was dominant i might have it be that like he dislocates his shoulder when he shoulder checks open the door to the stairwell but he still gets away but now he's in pain now there's like a, a painful consequence to it yeah, I guess that's I guess that's a bit easier because in like Blades in the Dark terms, that would be like saying, you know, this type of rule result specifically like it specifically has to be harm as the consequence rather than, you know, corruption or, or something like that. Just thinking of mm -hmm. teeth, you know, and the uh, the source document does sort of give additional guidelines here uh, saying like. You know, in a conflict, determine narrative control. Decide who gets to narrate this next little bit, right? Uh, again, using that example, the, the player character is running down the, his apartment hallway away from the police, and, you know, he gets the flight response. Well, determine the narrative control. The GM could say, do you want to describe how you flee, like how you put this into action, or... You know, the, the if the player, I guess, is a bit more timid or doesn't have a good idea, they can say, no, you describe how you do it. And uh, the source book also says, like, respect the spotlight. Allow people to have that narrative control for that moment. Uh, roll only when significant and just sort of create the narrative. Like, don't interrupt the narrative flow. Uh, so it does seem like uh, a factor to don't rest your head is allowing that narrative control to be a bit more fluid between player and game master, uh, intentionally more so than a lot of RPGs. There seems to be a lot of, like, offering to hand control to the player from time to time. Um, but even that is not all, uh, that's, that's sort of just following up on what we talked about last time. What I wanted to talk about this time uh, is the setting, the Mad City. Um, 
Gosh, you know, and I did also want to talk a bit about actual plays. Maybe I'll talk a little bit uh, about it at the beginning of Novelist, because I was looking up actual play videos for uh, both Don't Rest Your Head and Novelist. I gotta say, Tom, some of those are really tough to get through. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I, I mean... I guess we can talk about it here if you want. I have a lot of... <laughs> I have a lot of trouble getting through, like, I can't just, like, sit there and stare at a bunch of people sitting there playing a game. I do much better when I, like, have it playing in the background like it's a podcast, you know? Podcasts are definitely a lot more helpful, I've found. Um, like, actual play podcasts, I think it. I think it is because with a podcast, since it's all audio, there is pressure to fill the dead air. But, uh, man, every time I watch, like, a video on YouTube of... Uh, of some amateur group, like not a, not a, you know, not something like critical role necessarily. Um, there's always these awkward pauses. People are just sort of staring, you know, and staying quiet. There's not a lot of banter or, or commentary from other players. And a lot of those videos, like the ones I was looking up, I, I had to resort to going to podcasts to, to listen to people play Noblest because all the videos of them playing it on YouTube, it's just like, I don't know. It takes it takes forever to even get to the point. It's driving me crazy. You got to hit that speed 1.5 or whatever and then just minimize it and do something else. <laughs> I guess else. so. Um anyway, so the Mad City. Um this is it's it's it, I've talked about Neil Gaiman like this really is very neverwhere to me. Uh, in its depiction. It's just the idea that like beneath the veneer of our reality is this other reality that you could compare it to like the fairy court or maybe it's uh, like the movie Dark City, you know, where there are, there are other beings that are shaping reality that the, the normal sleeping humans can't perceive. Um, but yeah, so the Mad City is like the 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 spooky supernatural mirror of our world and you can get into it through any variety of ways but at the 13th hour so there you know 12 hours of the day but in the mad city there is a 13th hour that doesn't exist in our reality and that 13th hour all the doors are locked and so if you're in the mad city during the 13th hour you are trapped there um and here is what you could find in the Mad City. Uh, there is the Bazaar, Bazaar, of course, a market where anything can be bought, uh, anything from magic to memories. And uh, is this like the Goblin, the goblin market. market or the uh, also from Neverwhere, the Floating Market? Uh, you know, it's we've seen this kind of thing before. Um, the local authorities are the clockwork police led by officer talk and so they're all like british bobbies but they have big wind-up keys coming out of their backs the uh the being the entity who oversees like the bureaucracy of nightmares in the mad city is called the tax man but it's t-a-c-k-s and his fingers are all needles and his head is a giant like pushpin tack for a bulletin board um and then all of his uh his underlings are the pinheads and the needle noses who do his vile bidding. Uh, there is a an area called the high school. It's of course a high school, um, but it's 
lorded over by a Trunchbull-esque character called Mother Wen and her ladies in hating. <laughs> it is, you know, this one is kind of kind of Tim Burton-y as well, I gotta say. Um, Mother Wen instead of Mother Hen. The rooftops of the Mad City are called the Rooftop Jungle, and they are populated by the Paper Boys, who, there's Paper Boys again, Paper Boys, um, oh man, I said there's Paper Boys again, but our last Paper Boy reference we weren't recording, I'm gonna, I'll just have to edit this part out, the Paper Boys, who are like, scary orphans, but made of paper, they're like origami boys, who will come after you, they're the Roof Rats, who are a gang of, like, child bullies that live up there and then i thought this was pretty cool uh apparently the the barrier between reality and the mad city uh it's not uh impermeable and so occasionally airplanes and aircraft from our world fly through into the mad city but instantly like set, are sent tumbling from the skies they they're not able to fly uh, and the wrecks of the planes all crash in this one particular part of the city called the Air Fort, creating a weird, like, rooftop castle fortress uh, out of airplane parts that the roof rats inhabit. And then under the city, there's a network of... Uh, it's just, They're described as, like, intestine-like sewers, like these weird sort of snaking... Uh, um, the bowels. Exactly, the bowels of the city called the Warrens. And down there can be found a strange nightmare entity called the Wax King, who uh, purchases leftover memories that won't sell from the Bazaar Bazaar and sculpts them into wax coins that are one of the principal currencies of the Mad City. Um, you know, it's funny because this is sort of like Neil Gaiman... Sandman adjacent by way of DC Vertigo, but like it really reminds me of a lot of stuff from Doom Patrol. Yeah, actually. there's that's one of uh, the insect mesh and yeah, that's that. cited as one of the influences on, on the game here. Uh, yeah, Doom Handle Doom Man. Patrol, Neverwhere, you know, The Matrix, Dark City. Uh, I'd say, frankly, I'd say that the author Fred Hicks here uh, very much wears his influences on his sleeve. This has a lot of like Coraline in it too, you know, that like the guy made out of pins and the, the evil, the evil mother, uh, both very Coraline-esque uh, narrative elements. And um, I mean, that's sort of all I wanted to cover is just like set the stage. We talked so much about uh, the mechanics last time and uh, where are you going to play? What's the Mad City like? Uh, it's it's frankly, at this point, it's actually a very familiar kind of setting. I'm also thinking of like that video game little nightmares you know that one yeah, yeah same sort of flavor there and uh if you can get in that mindset i could very easily concoct a, a whole campaign set in this place um i don't know i think this is pretty cool like i actually really find the dice mechanics and you know the uh, the coin the the hope and despair coins that can be spent and the the way uh, narrative control is passed around. All that stuff I find pretty appealing. And the setting, you know, it is a cliche, but it seems like a, uh, because it's so familiar, it seems like the kind of thing that would be easy to build a game in and easy to have people play in, just because uh, I feel like they they know this flavor. I don't know, you probably, you seem a bit skeptical still though, huh? 
I mean, yeah, I think I'm more interested in the the game. Like, I'm not as interested in the mechanical aspect of it, but I do like the concept of the Mad City and the whole, like, sort of insomnia theme. Um, I think it's a cool idea. I just, uh, yeah, I don't know how well I can penetrate the setting uh, without getting a better... Getting getting better uh, sense of the uh, of the rules for myself, you know. That's fair enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did... I'd have to actually play it and do those rules like moment to moment to really f- understand it. I guess this presents. Uh, I feel like I haven't actually encountered this kind of situation with the RPG danger room before. It's an interesting question. Like, do I recommend? Don't rest your head. I like this. Like, I like what's laid out here. Um, I don't find the the mechanics particularly difficult to understand, especially if you just like watch five minutes of people playing with them. It's like, oh yeah, okay, that's how it works. Um, neat setting, and like I said, very familiar sort of source material that's easy to draw upon. But is there, do I have a reason to play this game? That I don't know. Um, it's, I, I guess this is like my lukewarm recommendation. Like if this sounds like your kind of thing, I think that it would probably play just fine. But uh, the question for me is, like, why why play this and not just, like, Blades in the Dark with this kind of story? See, that's the whole trick, is, like, um, it's something actually is funny. I Looking up that thing about Dogs in the Vineyard earlier, uh, one thing that a lot of people said in comments to what the developer had said were basically... Oh yeah, I had issues with the setting of Dogs in the Vineyard too, so I just adapted the rule set to this setting or that setting. Like one guy said that he had done it for Judge Dredd, which I think like works pretty okay, well yeah, as I like, see that. the idea of being like this sort of inquisitorial figure. Um and it's it's funny because like in that case it's like people obviously like the rule set enough that they took it and uh, used it with different settings. I think with this one, what we're saying is like, we have rule systems that we are more familiar with and more comfortable with that like, it'd probably be better for us to just like hack those systems to do this setting rather than learn the mechanics to go with it. Which I think is, I think that's the case for a lot of role playing games, especially, you know, once you've settled in. I think that's part of my issue with Cairn is like, you know, it's just, uh, it's not the system that I want to switch to. Um, and Cairn also didn't really have a setting to draw me in either. Fair enough. I mean, not to get too far off track, but like for me with Cairn, the appeal was just being able to pick it up and play and have it be close enough to D&D but require little enough setup that with the right, you know, group of people around your table, you could be playing a, a fantasy RPG very quickly as opposed to D&D, which can take a bit longer to to sort of get everything prepared for. Um, yeah, so I think that, like, in the, in the same way that, like, this system doesn't really appeal to us because of its lack of familiarity like the familiarity you have with d20 allows you to have that like in into cairn whereas like for me i've sort of maybe moved away from that or that's like maybe not as much my preference so other games sort of speak to well, me well in but... this case it's not even that it's yeah. unfamiliar to me like the 
I, I guess, like, I give it a lukewarm recommendation, but the reason I say, like, do I have a reason to play this is, like, it even sounds a lot like City of Mist, and City of Mist, uh, I just, I, I sort of liked the way that system was put together enough, and it had enough sort of differences, like the logos and the mythos, that it was enough to sort of draw me towards it and be like, this is, this is very new and very different. Whereas Don't Rest Your Head, it all feels very familiar. There are some slight differences, but, you know, if I'm going to play sort of like a Matrix or Neverwhere story, why not play that in something like Blades and the City of Mist, you know? Why not play it uh, in one of those? Why, why this system over that? I don't even necessarily think there's a, a good answer. You can play the system. I got no problem with it. I'd play the system if someone else wanted to put a game together. But yeah, I don't know. So, would you play Observer? Sure, of course. Or Observer's doing weird. You know, you've been teasing or Observer a lot on this show, Tom. You ever going to talk about it here? Well, I talked about it pretty extensively on our episode about Caltrop Core, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you want? Well, me to say? I, I, I certainly don't expect you to say it now, but like, I don't know. You get? Are you gonna? run a game you're gonna tell us about that game like you did with gi joe yeah i don't know or boots I, on the I got ground. so much other stuff on my yeah that's the trick is like i'm already into boots man boots on the ground got wacky uh boots on the ground i've got wheels within wheels cloaks within daggers infiltrators among infiltrators double agents all over the place it's session two man all right what have I got myself into? Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'll close the book here on Don't Rest Your Head by Fred Hicks. Like, I give it a thumbs up. Uh, I know it's uh, this is a very tepid-seeming thumbs up, but, like, th this is cool. I like this. I get the appeal, and uh, and I, 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 I would totally play it, I guess. But it's like that. It's like I just said, I, I'd play it, I guess. Sure. You know, I don't have strong feelings about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would play Karen if you ran a game of Karen. So yeah. there it is. Um, all right. I I think we've we've beaten around the bush enough. It's time. Keep me waiting, man. Keep me it's in time suspense. To talk about Noblest Tom, and Hollyhock. Yeah, God. the Hollyhock God is the game master of Noblest. Um, I where to even begin? This is Jenna Moran. Uh, this is definitely one of Jenna Moran's biggest games. Uh, the The more I looked into this, the more I found like like people actually do play this. Um, it has multiple editions. It's on third edition. Uh, I'm going to be talking actually about sort of a mix of stuff. Uh, some of which is from second edition, and part of the reason for that is because. Uh, Included in the second edition source book, but not in the third edition source book, is a lengthy transcript of a sample of play. So, mm. and for me, that was invaluable to understanding how this works. Uh, Should also be said that, like, historically, there's, you know, we've been talking about role-playing game controversies. Historically, there's some sort of controversy with how, I think it was like, 
some sort of publishing deal went wrong with the Guardians of the Order, which are based out of Guelph and did BESM, the Big Eyes Small Mouth game. I remember reading about how, you know, Jenna Moran got the short end of the stick on that one. Uh, some nonsense. I, I don't have the details. I'm doing terrible, <laughs> terrible pseudo journalism here. But, um, but, oh man, okay. But, uh, yeah, so not only is this like one of Jen Moran's uh, bigger titles, and I will be drawing upon both second and third edition uh, to try and describe it, but uh, the the big the big thing, the reason it took me as long as it has to even begin talking about it, is much like with Wisher Theurgist Fatalist. This is like a lingo heavy game, and uh it's even uh, this might be the most like lingo centric game that i've ever covered because uh things have like multiple names there are multiple labels for different aspects uh, of the game like like uh for example so you're saying that this is going to be more lingo heavy than low life yes because like imagine if in low life you could use cream fillion, uh, snack cakeian, and cupcakeian interchangeably, and then throughout the source book they do. So on one page they say the cream fillion steps up to the podium, and on the next page they say and the snack cakeian starts talking into the microphone, and they mean the same. They mean this the is same. Like- character this is exactly the sort of thing that i try to avoid when i'm designing a role-playing game is like not use different terms for one thing because that thing is going to have to be referred to in the rules you know as like and this is one of the easy to understand examples but for example the game is called nobilis tom you will be playing as a nobilis also known as a noble also known as the ennobled so okay. that's that's what I mean. It's just like there are synonyms for these terms that are used in the game and they are used interchangeably and it is very difficult to follow. You know what else makes this game difficult to follow? This is a 370 page source book and the rules for playing the game don't start until page 107. <laughs> like... 107 right. pages of table setting using interchangeable terms. It is very tricky. It's a Did you read that whole intro? All one No, I didn't read all 100 pages because this whole okay. intro isn't just an introduction to the game. It is describing different aspects of the game. Uh let me give you a sample from like the first the first uh, the first page that actually talks about like the lore of the game on page 13 four imperators run the world they are the council of four their names are ananda ha kosok baraka lord entropy and suralam they haunt the noble world just like the noblest haunt ours ananda is a living principle of beauty That isn't what he embodies. He isn't the imperator who is beauty or defines beauty. That would be firstborn, or at least one of the oldest angels. It's just what he is. His beauty is an apocalypse. It's an out-of-bounds error in the world. 
You still with me? <laughs> yep. He visited Mud Falls, Michigan one day and everyone went mad from joy. Mothers stopped feeding their babies. People driving cars stopped steering. The whole town collapsed, became a monstrous disaster area, and the people who survived spent the rest of their lives overwhelmed with happiness and joy and telling anyone who would listen about the fundamental rightness of the world. Birds fell from the sky, then they sang until their hearts burst. He is the imperator of murder in the infinite. He is the lord of the chancel city back. These things could be part of the reason that he's beautiful. I'm not going to judge people who murder or some infinite series in his name because they can probably find out where I live. The, the book is a little bit rambly. Like, that is... That's... It's got that tricky little tone. I was actually trying to explain that person earlier. I was trying to explain White Wolf products tend to have a tone that's very, like insidery it's like hey hey buddy you know we're all talking friends here uh that whole thing about like i i don't judge murderers because they might find out where i live is like including that is like part of that tone is like it's that little that's the smart yeah it's tone. it's like the author talking to you as opposed to like a textbook right it's it's narration versus textbook text um, so like these imperators, the ones that I listed, they are like some of the first things that are covered, uh, the, and talks about like, oh gosh, they dedicate a lot of, a lot of pages to these imperators. And then they talk about the ordinary world versus, uh, the, the realms of the noblest, the noble world, uh, the, the locust court, Tales of the Evil World. Boy, it's just, there is so much stuff. Uh, so all that to say, I used the sourcebook more as reference and instead got a more straightforward explanation of just like the bullet points of the game so that I had something to cling on to from uh, a different RPG podcast. Uh, one the, An episode from June 17th, 2014 of the system mastery podcast and the system mastery podcast is like a podcast where every episode is just a whole episode of the rpg danger room these guys uh, go through all sorts of different systems and rpgs and explore them and uh, they did a great job of breaking down uh noblest for me thank goodness um i'm also going to draw upon a primer to Nobilis that was written on uh, the RPG subreddit by a user called uh, Beck11. So, uh, and in fact, I'm going to draw from Beck11 first to like really lay out what Nobilis is, and then we can start dipping our toe back into like the actual text of the source book. But for this episode anyway, we're just going to do the intro to Nobilis, and here's what it's about. It is a game of massive power levels. Uh, apparently it is often compared to Rifts, but I think it's even like more so than Rifts because you are dealing with godlike beings through and through. Makes me think of Scion at the Scion god Scion is a good uh, touchstone. Uh, we've already mentioned that Sandman, I think, is actually a perfect touchstone for it because the godlike characters and the, the godlike beings that you encounter uh, are tied to 
aspects of reality, I guess, but not even necessarily, just like concepts. Uh, you, you could, you could, uh, be the embodiment of something like discourse. You could be, uh, the embodiment of gravity or, or the concept of strength, even if you wanted, or crumbs, you could be the, the, the noble of crumbs and uh, all the crumbs that fall down between the couch cushions, those crumbs are a tribute to your, your power. And you might even have the ability to listen through any crumb anywhere in the world. Your crumbs have ears, and you can hear through them. These are things... This sounds like some sort of time they're, wizard. They're, well, thankfully, it is more coherent than time wizard. But yeah, like even... You can get crazy to that degree. It is diceless. Everything is based on character stats and resource management of points. It is not combat-centric. Your character does have health and can be killed, but this is a lot more... Again, it's, you know, it's a lot more like something like Sandman, where the adventures are interesting, freeform, and creative stories exploring ideas, like heavy emphasis on role-playing, uh, it, it seems like if you have a background in something like creative writing, it's very helpful for, for this kind of thing. And, uh, so as I said, the players, the characters that the players are playing are concepts, like they represent concepts. Let me read here Becca Levin's, uh, sort of basic setting idea that will give you a sense of like where a player fits into this. One day you're walking along and you meet this guy. He explains he's not actually a guy, but he is an imperator, one of the most powerful beings, like an angel descended from heaven. He's recently pr procured the shard of reality representing conversation, and it's mandated that his kind watch over the concepts in their possession. The only problem is he spends his days in the spirit realm killing horrible beings from beyond reality, so instead... Since you have a mouth and are capable of communication, he is deputizing you to watch over it. He plants the shard into your soul, and suddenly you can see things as they truly are. It's like the wool is lifted from your eyes. Gravity, air, wit, these aren't forces or ideas. They are spirits, and everything has one down to each blade of grass. And you realize how big the universe is. Earth is just one fruit on the world tree of Yggdrasil. You have the dim sense that, had you seen this as a mortal, you would have been driven mad. And so, you have become a noble. You are now the concept of conversation. One by one, you're introduced to other nobles underneath your imperator. Although you sort of already knew them, because they all contain parts of the same being's soul. Together with the other nobles, you scheme against other noble families. You tend to your sanctum, which is called the chancel. You deal with mortals or not-so-mortals on Earth, or other fruits of the world, uh, the world ash or imperator forbid, encounter the occasional excrucian from beyond reality. Um, and, and that's sort of the idea. Um, who, you have to sort of think of 
who you are, what you want to be able to do, what your estate is, your estate being that thing that I was talking about, like the, the aspect that you represent. Um, hang on, I need to pull up another guide that I have here. This is from uh, the Noblest Wiki. There is a, a Noblest Wiki. Um, so the sovereigns of the com of the cosmos, uh, nobles are the sovereigns of the cosmos, and they have some degree of control over their estate, which is the purest essence of a concept of creation, and it's their job to protect what they represent. Their sources of power are the imperators. Those are those crazy big beings, beings of absolute power, uh, that they can be fallen angels, they can be demons, they can be gods, um, and they are incarnations of their own estates. Often, imperators are embodied in chancels, and chancels are like sort of, they're like the mad city. They are, are realms that are like a hair's width away from reality. They exist sort of in the cracks between worlds, um, and because imperators are embodied there, nobles are the ones who are sent out to protect their estates, uh, as well as the chancels and the imperators within. So, nobles tend to be humanoid. Again, think like Dream, think Death from Sandman. Um, like, they are very much uh, nobles. Dream is the noble of dreams. Nobles also have it in their physiology. A fragment of their Imperator's soul, uh, soul, that shard, contains most of the noble's power. But it takes skill for a noble to fulfill its potential. So, Tom, uh, right off the bat, what do you what do you think of this? What do you think of this this sort of crazy, uh, like ephemeral? You embody a concept kind of idea. After after Wisher Thayer just fatalist, it doesn't actually seem that far out. Yeah, I like it. Um, it does remind me a lot of Scion, particularly, and even on some levels, Mage. The way. That so in Scion, it reminds me of the way that you sort of have to decide as you're developing, as your character develops in Scion, um, basically what kind of god you want to be, what you what your character is all about, and what you embody as a character, because that's sort of like the end game that you're headed towards. But also, it's something that I always you know, always kind of blows my mind about Mage on an existential level is like with Mage, similar like what we were talking about with like the Matrix is this thing of like you have the ability to alter the fabric of reality and so the question becomes like if you can do anything What do you do? <laughs> what do you do exactly? Uh, and the answer is that you perform miracles. Performing miracles are one of like the main uh, methods of play in Nobilis. Um, but rather than get into that, since we're, we're coming up to sort of the two hour mark on this show, now that I've given sort of an introduction to the, the truly like, it's a very like a philosophical idea of what Nobilis is. Um, here's what I'll leave us with this time, because next time we're going to start making a character for you. And uh, so here's here are the things to think about, because 
In character creation for Nobilis, you're not just creating the character. There is collaboration with the rest of the party too. So you have to figure out your character concept and that character's estate, right? Like who you are, what you want to be able to do, what, uh, what, it, what aspect of creation you represent. And you'll also have to think about things like bonds, you know, things that matter to your noble and uh, bonds uh, with bonds also come anchors. So, you know, I said like, you know, you could be the god of crumbs. Well, the crumbs found in couch cushions, that could be an anchor for that character. Um, and then you also have to think about your own personal code, like what your character holds sacred. But on top of coming up with these ideas for your own character, once you've got all those together, and your, the other players in your party also have their character concepts, together you come up with your Imperator. You all collectively decide the boss who embodies, like, the, the sort of overarching boss uh, who has given you each a shard of their soul. So really what you're doing is not only are you coming up with your own character concepts, but you're coming up with sort of how they fit together and what the umbrella category that all of your abilities and stuff could be. I mean, it could be something like you you could very easily just say like, okay, you know, uh, this one character is the god of corn. This one character is the god of Mars. And this one character is their, sorry, nobles rather, the you know, noble of corn, the noble of Mars, and the noble of um, happiness. So you pick those three and then you go like, okay, well, our imperator is uh, the Martian corn god who's always happy. Like if you want to cheat, you can just sort of like wrap it up like that. But I think that it's an interesting idea and sort of a fun challenge to put forward to the players to be like, okay, and what concept ties you all together? That is what your Imperator will be like. And then you also have to come up with your Chancel, uh, which is, like I said, the realm that it, your Imperator spends a lot of time in. And it's essentially the godly base of operations. Maybe it's a small temple and anybody can reach it by praying. Maybe it's a sprawling underwater city with anti-sub turret defenses and wizards. Players begin with chancel points uh, and then together they can come up with their chancel and they can, uh, they can get even more points by taking disadvantages like, you know, their chancel always smells like feet. Um, so not only are we building a character, but... We're basically, we're building their base and their boss. We're, we're building, you know, uh, we're, we're building the characters, but we're also building the Empok and we're building Coyote. <laughs> I love it. So I, and, and we will, yeah, and we will, we will get into all of that next time uh, because, man, we're just scratching the surface. There is so much going on here. Uh, character creation is even pretty wild. I already, like, I find this really intriguing. It's frustrating to me, though, where, like, the like the way it's laid out is very frustrating to me. I wish this was sort of broken up more and presented more like, you know, your standard source book. Because I'm I find uh, the Nobilis RPG source book is, is even kind of difficult to use as a reference guide. 
makes me interested uh, to know how you'd uh, fare against Scion if you were to uh, bring that to the danger mm. room. Well, we've definitely, I, I know I've definitely taken a look at Scion before. Um, it seems less philosophical and at least more easy to follow in the writing. I guess that's, I guess that's sort of what yeah, I'm getting down uh, to is I'm saying that, like, I love Jenna Moran. I love the ideas, but I find the, the voice of the writing makes it hard to digest them without outside help. This is the thing is I think that because Scion presents its ideas more like a classic RPG splat book, that might be yeah, more exactly. your jam. But anyway, more noblest to come. And that's it for sure our is. episode. If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes and follow us, check us out on Facebook, Compare and Campaign on Facebook. Or if you want to uh, see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on compareandcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, that's it for the episode. Don't steal from the nobles, because them concepts will Become be Become ennobled. Determine your imperator. Inhabit your chancel. Not me. Be the god of not me. Uh, I got some weird ideas for what I'll be the god of. Don't you worry. <laughs>